and good afternoon and welcome to Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet and uh, joining us today is the late Patty Fink. Josh is on the board and our guest is Britt East. He's on the phone with us. Britt, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Seattle, Washington. From Seattle. Okay, I knew that. Uh, Britt is the author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life, Get Real, Stand Tall, and Take Your Place. It's by a gay man and for gay men, but anyone's welcome to read it, he says in his introduction. <laughs> so something might apply to my lesbian life. It would apply to your lesbian life. Great. Um, I think it's more straight men should read it because they could learn from it. Um, because not just gay men are bullied, not just gay men have gestures or voices or body flaws or family issues or work non-traditional jobs. Um, you know, the, everybody has those kinds of things, but these address it directly to a gay man. Um, welcome, Britt. I enjoyed your book. And you say, be- you. you say before coming out, you tried, uh, but simply could not pass. You describe yourself as a beautiful blend of masculine and feminine traits that confounded most people I encountered, and that confusion often led to conflict, rejection, harassment, or even violence. Tell us about your experience that led to your coming out. Well, you know, we queer people have long been at the mercy of those uncomfortable with their own desires. And that often leads to conflict or violence. Um, what led to my coming out was just the inalienable recognition of my true nature. And I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by a very small but vibrant queer community that helped support me. Now, obviously, you got no support from your family, right? That's correct. You know, above and beyond the homophobia that was endemic in my family was also intergenerational abuse. Uh, so I was kind of double distinct from that standpoint. And um, what struck me when uh, reading the book was how different our backgrounds are. Because let me give you a little. First of all, Josh, our board operator, he came flying out of the womb gay. <laughs> Um, Patty was always gay, went to the most homophobic college. She went to Baylor and didn't <laughs> give a crap about it. <laughs> and um, I never learned. I, I uh, am a generation before you, and I never learned there was anything wrong with being gay. In fact, it was my mother who worked at Sarah Lawrence College, big lesbian school, who told me that I was gay, basically. Um, and, and that it was okay that people have to be and do, you know, be who they are and do what makes them happy. Um, you didn't have any of that support, but you learned it, and that's what this book teaches, really. Absolutely. I just want to be the family that maybe a lot of gay people never had and fill in the gaps that they might have missed along the way when it comes to accumulated and transmitted knowledge, um, ceremonies, initiations, rites of passage, all those things that queer people might have missed, I just want to lend a hand and give some big brotherly advice mm-hmm. and maybe help them, give them a leg up in life. 
Um, I want to stay with family a little bit. Um, you say it's a myth that all parents love their children, just something we like to tell ourselves. Um, in your family, did you see a lot of that? You said there was intergenerational abuse, but how about your extended family? Did you see more acceptance? Or, or no. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hit I, I came from a family like that was something out in Baltimore. It was really steeped in trauma, and there was no wisdom. There was nothing to pass down other than hate and violence. Huh. Um, you know, as I was reading the book, I was thinking of, you know, you would tell about an experience, and then I was thinking of some personal ones. So I thought of the first time I was a guest on a radio show. It was 1975, and it was on a midnight show because you wouldn't want to talk about homosexuality uh, during the day. You know, so, somebody might actually hear it. But so this talk show uh, had invited me and one of my best friends on. She was a lesbian, and we were there as gay man and lesbian. And... Uh, so there were callers. We talked a little bit about ourselves, and um, uh, one of the um, callers asked, and he said, does your family accept you? And I remember clearly not understanding the question. And you would have said, Britt, that your family didn't accept you. I gave what I normally do in that situation. I gave a smart-ass answer, and I said, except me, they're my family. And then I said, and they're the ones who are nuts. Now, like you, I'm an only child. Um, so I'm talking, and if any of my cousins are out there listening, yes, I am talking about you. Um, <laughs> but that was my answer. I'm the normal one in this family. And it was an honest answer. As smart-ass as it was, it was an honest answer for me. Um, what did how your family treated you make you think you were? You know, growing up, my overriding sense was that I was living in oblivion, that I was excommunicated from the world of men and women and people in general, that I was truly on my own, and that anything that I might make would have to be with my own two hands. I literally assumed that I would never be able to, I would not be eligible for employment because I was gay. I literally assumed I would be a pariah for the rest of my life. I never dreamed things like marriage would be open to me. So I suffered from a poverty of vision and a desolation of the mind that took years and years to recover from. Hmm. Um... In your book, uh, in your chapter on family, you say the harsh reality is that some of your family will reject you the way mine rejected me. Um, I, I, I get that's what it did to you. How did they actually reject you? Um, I think the, the most harmful thing a family can do to a child is neglect to write the template of their lives. Aside from providing safety and shelter, 
a parent's primary responsibility is to allow their children to meet themselves in their own eyes. In other words, when a child looks into a parent's eyes, they see themselves reflected back. Mm-hmm. And if there is a healthy attachment, then that sense that forms a sense of self, which gives them a platform to jump off of and go have go experience life and have adventures. And that was really, I mean, there's all sorts of more, more classic incidents of abuse that I could outline, but that's really the, the overriding, overarching theme is I grew up as nothing. I had nothing. I was nothing. I knew nothing. It was absolute oblivion. It was like floating in space and I had to resurrect a sense of self. And how did you do that? My life completely fell apart. And so, so in a way that was finally undeniable. Um, and it forced me to seek help. So what specifically happened, which I outlined in the book, is mm-hmm. that I was in a long-term relationship at a young age at that time, in the, in the early 90s. I was um, in my early 20s and was with somebody for six years. And this was somebody that I had an excessive emotional reliance on. I was completely codependent because I had no true sense of self. It was like I held up my life to him on a silver platter and hoped that he might take care of it. It was patently unfair. <clears throat> and at one point, um, he was arrested for having sex with a minor. Oh, boy. He disclosed a subsequent sex addiction. And it obliterated my life. And it was... an amazing gift despite the trauma because it finally jolted me awake and got me to seek professional help both in terms of talk therapy but predominantly in the 12-step program for spouses of sex um, sex addicts and so sitting in those rooms I finally learned how to take off my mask that so many of us queer people wear and get real for the very first time and sit in a circle and start to feel the thrill of telling my own story and reclaiming my life. Was it a group specifically for gay men? No. In fact, most of the um, participants were straight cis women. Oh. Yeah, what was the what was the dynamic like in, in those groups? Were they accepting of you? Very much so. This was in Seattle in 2000. Um, so very liberal compared to the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they carried all, all sorts of biases and maybe um, were clumsy in dealing with the community, but they were not without love and genuine respect, even if they had puppy feet in speaking our language. So it was easy to extend the generosity to those that really truly wanted to love me. They truly were trying to be accepting. And I experienced a beauty like nothing I'd ever seen before. I had never really been in a group therapy situation. And this was, I mean, obviously not classic group therapy because meetings are, are similar. There's, there's something special about that group love with others who have experienced that similar kind of, of desolation and know exactly what you mean. And you have kind of a shorthand and you develop a really quick, intense rapport. And then coupling that with the fact that this was the first time I truly allowed others to see me. Like I said, it was thrilling. And, and I found my voice for the first time and I've never looked back. Hmm. That's awesome. I, I'm, I'm yeah. so glad you finally landed in that place. It took a, 
a lot of pain to get there, but yeah. but wow, what a what a, a great way to continue your life, you know, like begin again. It was a miracle. It was frankly, it was a miracle. It saved, you know, that sex addiction disclosure incident saved my life. And I don't say that with any sense of humility. I don't mean to be glib. I mean, I just mean it literally. Had he not done that, had I not chosen him, had he not, um, and you know, by the, sorry, by the way, we're friends to this day and we stay really close and my husband's friends with his husband. So I can say this with nothing but love, no animosity. Um, you know, that, that incident truly saved my life because that's what it took to jolt me awake, to finally get real. Um, if somebody is dealing with sex addiction, either themselves or a partner, um, what do you recommend they do? Because it, it's not like drinking where you're going to be arrested for uh, drunk driving. I mean, you will be arrested if you're having sex with a minor. Um, or sex in public. Or sex in public. But that's not necessarily what sex addiction has to do. Or do you find that that's generally a common theme that ran through uh, other people in the group? Well, you're exactly right. The behaviors associated with sex addiction run the gamut. They are varied. And um, they can range from anything... Well, um, you know, from the completely legal behaviors to the completely illegal behaviors. And so the law may not intervene. Um, what I tell people is that addiction is any compulsive mood-altering behavior that renders your life unmanageable. And that last part is the key, and only you can determine when your life is rendered unmanageable. Only you can assess those consequences. Sex addiction is a touchy subject in our community because so much sexual shame has been foisted on us by straight people in, in a sort of the gentle genocide as they try to eradicate us, quite frankly. Do you know I use so, Okay, Go ahead. Sorry about that. So, no, go ahead. Um, my, my only point was that um, you know, sexual liberation, sexual freedom is at the core of our community and who we are. So it's really important to think through as you survey your life or the life of your loved one to hone in on the consequences. If you're having lots of anonymous sex, that is not intrinsically morally wrong at all. You get to pick your own morals. But if it's costing you your job, mm -hmm. your, your loving relationship, then there might be an issue. And there are so many resources available to you online and from you know, paid subject matter experts um, who can intercede and, and help you um, help treat this uh, this issue or um, free services like the 12 steps and everything in between. These days, there's a wealth of services out there. You just have to do some sure. research. Tons of books, too. Tons of podcasts on it. It's, it's kind of a hot topic. But when I was going through it, there was nothing on it. I mean, I think there was one book that was published at the time and just a few 12 steps around the country. So I was mm -hmm. very fortunate to live in an area that had one. And, and what I was going to say was uh, I worked with somebody, this is about 30 years ago, and he was going to a sex addiction group. And, you know, we're just joking around. And uh, I said, well, isn't sex addiction actually kind of healthy? And he said, not when you're missing work and losing jobs. Yeah. And, and that was his definition of, you know, it's a very easy to diagnose uh, way way of looking at it. If you're missing work, if you're missing important events, uh, 
and taking your time just having sex, that's a good definition of being addicted. And there are groups, there's been one here in Dallas for years. Yes, it's about the competency. Um, Josh, we need to take a break. Um, we're talking to Britt East. Uh, his new book is A Gay Man's Guide to Life. Get real, stand tall, and take your place. Britt, stay with us. Just a short break. We'll be back with more Lambda Weekly right after this. And I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with uh, the late Patty Fink. And Josh is on the board with us. And calling us from Seattle is Britt East. He's the author of a new book, A Gay Man's Guide to Life. Get real, stand tall, take your place. Um. Now, Britt, I was I was struck by how early in your in in your life actually um, you sought out help and, and professional help and in a support group, and I think that's one one additional layer that we all have to deal with as adults is um, a receptiveness to going to seek help to get therapy. There's still a stigma about getting any sort of mental health care, um, and I think it's just really important. I know. Um, early in my life, I lost my mom. I was like 24 years old when I lost my mom. And I had a, a lot of mixed emotions and a difficult relationship with my mother. Um, and it was driving me crazy. I wasn't sleeping. I had insomnia continuously for about a year. And I went, uh, someone recommended a therapist to me and I went and it made all the difference in the world. And since then and since my early 20s, I've gone to seek um, help from, from therapists and professional counselors, um, you know, when I need to. Um, but I see others and I encourage them to go and they, they, they really feel the stigma. Like, oh, I couldn't do that. Like, it's beyond their reach. Um, have you encountered others that have um, want to seek help, but they don't? They're scared of that? I think that's a big stigma in our community about that, too. I agree. Um, I like to think of it in terms of Band-Aids and booster shots. So many of us spend um, our hard-earned money kind of bolstering our various uh, levels of denial. You know, maybe we um, spend our money on excessive pornography. Maybe we spend it on excessive amounts of alcohol or drugs or nicotine or, or caffeine even. And I just encourage people to think what their life might be like if they invested more in booster shots than Band-Aids. Instead of just papering over our problems, if we really got to the root causes, and in most cases, frankly, it takes professional help to do that. It's beyond the capacity of our friends and family. It's really not their job. Um, they don't have the expertise. Um, they don't have the time or energy. They're busy living their lives, and it can erode the quality of our relationships. So I really encourage people to seek professional help um, I, you know, I've been so fortunate. I've really never had a bad therapist. I'm sure they're out there, but I've only had wonderful experiences. So um, I'm with you on that. Um, I want to go to a different chapter in the book. Uh, it's one where you talk about community, um, but you talk about it, how important uh, the LGBT community is to so many people. Uh, but you talk about some things that are wrong with the community as well, like misogyny. Um, and you have some cures for it. Do you want oh, to talk? I, I do yeah. want to hear these. <laughs> I do want to hear these. Misogyny lives all around me, so please, welcome, I welcome this. 
<laughs> and that's why when I knew you were going to be here instead of Laurent, I said, oh, yeah, we have to talk about misogyny. <laughs> you know, I believe that at its core, homophobia is about misogyny, that we have pathologized the feminine, and it comes from a toxic masculinity that has spanned the millennia and involved patrimony, the passing down of, of land and wealth from father to son at the exclusion of all else. And part of that, baked into that cake, is heterosexual marriage, the subservience of women, um, the exclusion of the other. This is all prevent, you know, we, I, I think we have an epidemic of loneliness a sustained loneliness in our community, especially among um, queer men. And I think this internalized homophobia, in other words, misogyny, is at the heart of it. The way that we abhor the feminine, even subconsciously, impacts our friendships with straight women, with lesbians, with feminine gay men. It impacts the um, fear and fetishes we feel towards straight men, masculine men, it touches everything that we do. We cannot escape from it. In a world filled with, um, you know, white supremacy, male supremacy, straight supremacy, we can't help but make homophobic, racist, misogynistic chauvinist choices from time to time. And so it takes continuous examination of our own choices to figure out, okay, what, where are things going wrong? Where are things going right? What could we do to improve? As well as the really hard work of advocacy to start to remove these structures that perpetuate this otherism, regardless of who the other is. And it may sound academic when we talk about it, but I believe it impacts our daily lives, regardless of your walk of life, regardless of your gender identity or expression, regardless of your race, regardless of your sexual orientation. I think it touches every aspect of everything that we do. We're swimming in this cauldron of bigotry, and we can learn to rise above it, but it requires sweat equity. I, I agree with that. And, and you know, I, there's that long-held view that homophobia really was born out of misogyny. And I tend to yeah. agree with that. And it plays out in a really um, sort of, you know, comic and yet large, meaningful way as well for women who are uh, self-identify as lesbians. Uh, you know, Kate Clinton, the, the great lesbian comic, um, you know, has this line talking about um, stealth lesbians. Like we could be there and we could be waving our arms, let's say, as a, as a member of the legislature and nobody sees us. Or you say an idea in a boardroom and um, a, a guy will pick it up um, and say, say the same idea. Now everybody wants to go with it because he said it. A guy said it, not the woman. And it's, it's, it's straight up misogyny. I mean, this happens to all women, whether they're gay or straight or, um, or undecided. Um, but it, it's, it's very, very uh, meaningful. And it's the reason, for example, we have culturally something like a Boston marriage. You know, I mean, that, that term I think is ironic since, you know, marriage of gay people in the United States was born in Boston and Massachusetts. Um, but Boston marriage usually means 
two women living together and everybody's just hush-hush about it. Mm-hmm. And we look at culturally, straight men look at, look at gay men, they look down on them because of the, the, their homophobia and their misogyny about that, make fun of, of, of gay men and term, always term it in terms of masculinity, um, typically. Um, but for women, look what straight men do. They, they kind of like fetishize about, les- you know, two le- if I could have two, two women and two lesbians, that would be really hot. You know, and so it's, it's, it's twisted up, it's perverted, it's, 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 not, um, it's, it's not a fair way to look at the world. And yet here we are sucked up into this big vortex of toxic masculinity that's just destroyed so many people's lives. And really and made it, it, they really make life very hard. Yeah, and it makes all of our life hard. Aside from the moral issue, it just pragmatically all of our lives would be better if we stopped it. If we learned to see each other as unique, complex um, human beings, um, and and celebrate our differences and diversity rather than punish it. You, you know, here in Dallas, we went through a period, and I like to think that it's still there's some residual fallout from it. Uh, during the AIDS crisis, of course, here uh, the lesbian community took care of the men. Uh, but we had an extreme example of that over at Baylor Hospital. Um, Baylor is historically homophobic. They were known for firing gay staff. But what they did still at the beginning... <laughs> and still are. Um, but what they did at the beginning of the AIDS crisis was they transferred all their lesbian or suspected lesbian nurses to the AIDS floor. And those guys got the best care in the country. I mean, unparalleled love from our lesbian community. And, and there was a period where a lot of people remembered that. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid we're losing that. I could not agree more. I think that gay men have been the beneficiary of the advocacy of the women's rights movement which is driven largely by lesbians, as well as the civil rights movement um, for people of color. And we really have to understand the direct impact that things like the 1964 Civil Rights Bill has had on our daily lives today. When you look at the recent Supreme Court um, judgment around Title IX and extending those benefits to um, gay people uh, around employment and non-discrimination, that is a result of the civil rights bill. Um, so aside from moral issues, we just have to give credit where credit is due. And for too long, we've kind of been the little brothers. Um, and God love us. <laughs> you know, it's time. We, we now, there's enough of us now who have enough agency. It's time for us to grow up and learn to stand in our own power so we can pay homage to those who came before us and lift everyone else up. And racism is another thing that you spend some time on uh, in the book, and you talk about ways that we can get over our racism. You said things like, uh, have friends who are, and this is directed to white gay men, have friends who are black. Vote for black people. (laughs) I, I think the voting for black people, the gay community has a good record on, I hope. Yeah, I mean, things are changing, and that's probably one where we give ourselves a lot of 
credit for in a kind of performative public way. Um, I'm not so sure on the grassroots level how that's playing out, but I would agree with you on the national level. I think the, the racism in gay men resides more on our transactional approach to sex, um, the way that we fear and fetishize black men and black bodies in particular, the way that we recoil at Asian bodies um, or fetishize them as well. Um, uh, our various tropes around uh, Latinx people. Um, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. You can just spend a few minutes on Grinder and see our vile behavior mm -hmm. large. In fact, if there were any way to quantify it, I would say that racism is more toxic in the gay community than any other community. And by that, I mean gay men. Um, I don't know about the lesbian community, but I, 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 my experience is that racism is so rampant in our community because we think that we have earned some sort of free path because we have experienced some bigotry ourselves. And while that may be true, the free path is not valid. And we are not going to learn how to um, experience the full range of love and truly eradicate this sustained level of loneliness that so many of us endure until we learn to see people as people and celebrate all of our diversity. I, I totally agree. And um, I know in, in our community here in Dallas, um, racism is um, a pervasive issue in our community. Pervasive. It's, um, it's there. It's, it's, um, it may change over time, but it's always there. It's always there. Um, there is a, a saying here about like the early, the early days and the early organizations that were all gay, white, white gay men. Uh, running everything, and um, uh, we, we still use this term pale, male, and stale, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and women had no place, people of color had no place, it was all a world created and uh, by and for white gay men. Well, here's something that gay men should know, actually everybody in our community should know. Uh, our first non-discrimination ordinance for uh, LGBT people here in Dallas is a direct result of the work of Coretta Scott King. Um, we asked her for a letter. We had a, um, uh, an ordinance that we wanted passed, and we asked her for a letter because without our four, I think it was four at the time, black uh, council members, we weren't going to pass it. And she wrote a letter saying that Martin Luther King absolutely was against all forms of discrimination. And it gave them, they, they were on our side on, on this, but uh, it gave them the cover that they needed to go back to their churches and say, I voted for it because Coretta Scott King told me to. We wouldn't have our ordinance if it wasn't for her. And That's amazing. Yeah, everybody here needs to know that. Um, you know, and personally, it's funny because, you know, I said as I was reading your book, I'm thinking of my own experiences. I grew up not understanding racism or what it was. I, it had to be explained to me that a friend of mine was black because I didn't, you know, I knew his skin was darker and somebody else that I was friendly with was blonde. I mean, that was more rare in my school than, uh, than black. Yeah, you're, you're a complete aberration, though, David. Well, I know that. It's pervasive in no, the South. I, I'm not saying it isn't. I'm saying 
And I'm thinking of my own experience with with it, and that's that racism had to be explained to me, and I've never really understood it because it's stupid. It's it's but you're talking about intergenerational um, abuse and and um, the carryover that it has for generation after generation after generation. All of these isms are are self perpetuating, uh, self propelling. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that is most difficult to try to dismantle them, is that we always have those issues. I think that part of it is, unfortunately, human nature. I think there's something about seeing another. Somebody who looks different than us goes to the core of our limbic brain and triggers some sort of latent fight-or-flight mechanism because racism and colorism are universal. You can't find a country, a place without it. And so I think, unfortunately, it's something we all have to work really hard to transcend. Um, I don't think that it's ever going to just melt away of its own accord. I think it's a continual fight. Right. And, you know, there are, the, the truism here is that there are only two things. There are racists and there are anti-racists. Um, yeah. And there's only racism and anti-racism. So if you're not anti-racist, actively working against racism, then you're racist. Because silence is complicity. Completely. Oh, and I agree. I'm just saying that what racism was, and most people just talk about, you know, I say, well, when did you learn to be racist? They said, well, it's just something I've always known. I didn't understand color. And it's, I'm not trying to be an idiot and saying, well, I don't see color. I'm saying, I see, I see what you look like. I just never understood why that one trait made a difference. No, and you're, you're young in your youth, David, you were probably an island of 250 million people. Well, like I said, my mother (laughs) worked at Sarah Lawrence College, big lesbian school. Um, We need to take a break. Uh, You're listening to Lambda Weekly on 89.3 KNON-FM. I'm Dave Taffet here in the studio with uh, the late Patty Fink. Uh, Josh is with us today on the board. Britt East is our guest. He's the author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life. Get real, stand tall, and take your place. We'll be back with more right after this. And this is Lambda Weekly. I'm Dave Taffet. And um, I'm here with Patty Fink. Uh, Britt East, the author of A Gay Man's Guide to Life, is on the phone with us. Britt, I just wanted to um, give you a heads up. Here at KNON, we're trying to keep things as safe as we can for each other. And so we're ending our shows about 10 minutes before the hour. Um, most people don't realize that because we just play music. Um, but uh, we need to end at about 10 minutes before the hour so we can wipe everything down, change the windscreens, and uh, keep it as safe as we can. And so far, we've been doing a pretty good job because we've been lucky here yes. at the station. Um, I want to talk a little bit about work. One of the things that you say is some people won't hire us because we're gay. Now, again, here's where my experience is different. I work for the gay newspaper. On the weekend, I do a gay radio show. I go to a gay synagogue. Um, and so I just assume anybody I meet is gay unless they tell me otherwise. <laughs> Flip the script. Well, I always think the best of people. 
my doctor, my dentist, my eye doctor, they're all gay. I mean, it's just, I guess I don't live in the world that most people do. But uh, you had trouble with, uh, with jobs because of your sexual orientation, right? Absolutely. I, I have a corporate career of over 20 years in marketing and technology. Um, I've been really fortunate to work for some very successful companies, and most of them um, make a lot of daily homophobic choices. <laughs> and you know, if you all it takes is to look at the people um, at the top of the org chart. If you're not seeing um, women, if you're not seeing trans people, if you're not seeing people of color, if you're not seeing openly gay people, if you're not seeing people who live with disabilities, I mean, this is simple math. Then your company is making some really bad choices, and they frankly don't deserve your employment. Now, we have to be pragmatic. We all have bills to pay. And I have certainly made choices that, you know, I'm going to choose to pay these bills and, mm -hmm. and make some money and, and take care of my family, even though I'm working for a company that is really tough to abide. Um, and so that's a sacred choice that individuals have to make for themselves. My only comment on this in the book is just to be real. You know, if you're getting continually passed up in promotions, if you're having trouble getting, um, you know, past a certain round in the job interview process, you might just um, uh, broaden your gaze and consider the potential of homophobia at play. Not that you can necessarily even change it, but you have to start by acknowledging it. What we should not do is then closet ourselves. What we should not do is then play their game, assuming that, Obviously, we can afford to. Some of us have to make tough choices. Um, I, whenever I can, I try and resist. I try to stand tall in the face of that homophobia and exist as I am. I just try to embody my values and be who I am and shine my light as bright and as proud as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's all we can do. Mm. And, and well, it's not all we can do. I mean, we can take things to the EEOC and we can and can fight. And I encourage people to do that if they have a case that that they could win. Um, I think that's, and even if you don't, if you want to bring it to their attention. Because one thing is we, we do know, for example, with our ordinance in Dallas, um, we don't we don't have much of a penalty for it because we're not, the city is not empowered to do much in terms of a penalty. Um, but what they do... Um, around those complaints is um, make it public and they want an apology and they want a policy change and and those kinds of things do uh, do create change <laughs> right they like really it do and especially with social media that stuff goes public and viral mm -hmm. pretty quickly in local communities these days and that's that's one place where technology is really on our side. So I, I really echo what you say. Like at Baylor, they have a uh, physical fitness. Jim, mm -hmm. uh, and they used to have family memberships, but they wouldn't extend it to a same-sex couple. Uh, so the remedy for Baylor was to do away with family memberships. <laughs> so for everybody, they did away with their family membership just so they wouldn't have to give it to this one gay couple. Yeah, that's, that's not a new technique. <laughs> not the best uh, policy. Yeah, I was thinking of um, as I was reading your portion on uh, on work. I was thinking back to um, 
an old boyfriend of mine is a Broadway producer, and um, uh, I saw him right around the time uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie opened, and he was telling me that when he found out that every single chorus boy in the opening of the Broadway production was straight, he was furious. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we get stereotyped, though, for jobs. Oh, absolutely. And we are often the perpetuators of the homophobia. I mean, we have to be honest with the ways that we penalize gay people in the corporate world as gay people and get real about that and find ways that we can open up doors for those coming behind us to make their lives a little easier than we had it. Um, we only have a couple yes. of minutes left, uh, but um, I, I want to go to religion. You call yourself an atheist in the book, and that's because of how you were raised? Yeah, my parents were actually um, came of age in the 1960s and so discarded much of the religion that our extended family um, was steeped in. And, and so I happily grew up without any connection to the church. Um, you know, lots of people in our community have wonderful experiences in organized religion. Um, I just never felt the call. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a very rich spiritual life. I just don't happen to believe that there's any sort of all-knowing, all-powerful being who wants or certainly requires our supplication. I just, it doesn't, I just, it doesn't resonate with me. I have all sorts of faith, however, and I have a robust spiritual practice. And one of the things you say in your book is, my family questioned, shamed, and ridiculed my sexuality and gender expression until they forced me in the closet completely, all in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's interesting that they uh, had abandoned their religion um, and did this to you in the name of Jesus. That's a great question. I'm so glad you brought that up because it was all about keeping up with the Joneses. What would other people think? Yes. It was not based in their personal religious convictions. It was based in the religious convictions of others, which is astoundingly pathetic. Mm -hmm. And which makes you think, what are your personal religious beliefs then if it's all about the appearance? How will this exactly. look to others? Like, do you even have any? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, I've always said that I don't really care what other people believe in their own church as long as it doesn't affect me. So don't take it out of your church uh, and into the real world. Um, but um, you say that um, if we're members of a well-meaning church that promises inclusion, um yet does not explicitly celebrate gay lives and bodies, then we're condoning and even participating in spiritual abuse if we belong to a church that does not embody equality by conducting gay weddings and celebrating marriages. We're part of the problem. Absolutely. I mean, let's, just, let's not miss words. There's so many churches who do tons of beautiful things out in the world and have really wonderful beliefs. And they might also hold some really subtle, horrible beliefs or practices. Maybe they do some window dressing in terms of equality and inclusion. Maybe they allow gay people to be members to attend regularly. But if you're not seeing any openly gay deacons or people in positions of power, if they're not celebrating gay marriages, they're just playing from the cheap seats. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to get real. Yeah, and I love that you, you end your chapters on 
on, on service work. I've always believed that if in your lowest times in life, when you're struggling the most, the most, the most healthy thing and the, the best pathway back to, um, some sort of the normalcy you seek is to, is to um, turn and, and serve others, you know, volunteering yeah. your time. And it, it really, um, brings a new perspective. It's a, it's a great, um, solution provider for so many emotional and, and even like people who are lonely, go meet, go meet people who are working and serving, um, serving others. Um, great, great people. We are out of time. I want to thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's, I just closed my computer. I'm blank. Give me the name of the book. A Gay Man's Guide to to Life. Thank you. Uh, Do you know, I'm thinking, okay, and Leslie Newman is our guest next week, and her new book is, and and I'm blanking, so I'm blanking on everything. Uh, But Leslie will be with us uh, next week. Britt, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. And for all of us here at Lambda Weekly, be best.